New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. Imagine you are struggling to feed your family in the teeth of the Great Depression. And one day at work, you cause an accident and somebody dies. Do you risk that precious job at a time of sky-high unemployment and risking going on a breadline? Or do you let somebody else take the fall for what you did wrong? We'll meet a young man who faces just such a dilemma. But first, hello everybody and welcome to the History Author Show. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and a special tip of the hat to everybody watching today's time travel adventure via our YouTube and Rumble channels. You can find me at historyauthor.com. From there, check out all my social media accounts. Plus, you can read my columns in the Washington Times to get my analysis of current events in light of all these books of history I've read behind me. In this episode, our time machine welcomes back a familiar face. She's award-winning novelist Sheila Myers, and she brings us the truth of who you are. In this based on a true story work of historical fiction, we meet Ben Taylor. His decision stateside with the New Deal Civilian Conservation Corps follows him to the Great Smoky Mountains and all the way to the battlefields of Europe during the Second World War. Sheila Myers is a professor of ecology in upstate New York. Her previous work of historical fiction earned the 2017 Best Book of Fiction from the Adirondack Center for Writing. We chatted with her three times about her Durant family saga. That trilogy followed Union Pacific Railroad tycoon Dr. Thomas C. Durant and his two children from the 1870s through their boom and bust lives. Book one in that trilogy is Imaginary Brightness. Book two, Castles in the Air. And the stirring conclusion, The Night is Done. You can find each of those interviews in our archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're enjoying this conversation. It is audio only, however, so you can still enjoy it, but keep in mind you're not going to be able to see it and watch it like you're going to be able to watch some of the great photos we have this week of the CCC. I love that back in the New Deal, they kept such great records of everything that was going on. So vivid. We've all seen those pictures from the Great Depression, not to mention World War II, of course, at the time. You can visit SheilaMyers.com for more on today's guest or find her on Twitter and Facebook for some of those glimpses of the past. Okay, now that we've sharpened our axes and headed for the forest straddling the North Carolina and Tennessee border, let's join Sheila Myers and discover the truth of who you are. And here we are with Sheila Myers. She's joining us to chat about her latest novel, one I'm really excited about. It's called The Truth of Who You Are. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Sheila. Hi, thanks, Dean. Thanks for having me again. You're somebody who likes to dig into those newspaper archives. You dig for those historical nuggets. We exchange those every now and then on Twitter. That's how we've stayed in touch, one of the ways anyway, yeah. all this time. So. What historical light bulb for you, what of those nuggets that you found gave you this idea for the truth of who you are? And if you recall that moment when you said, aha, I found the next book or a possible next book, I'm going to dig into it 
because you just finished this compelling story with the Durant family saga, that trilogy. How did you decide this is the next one, a standalone book that I'm going to pick, and this will be the next journey I take my readers on? Yeah. So a couple of things happened. I learned about the Conservation Corps. I mean, I always kind of knew about them, but I was uh, traveling and was reading some information about the Civilian Conservation Corps during the Great Depression and just was intrigued by these men uh, and the work they did for our national and our state parks. And I was visiting my parents down in uh, South Carolina and they live in the Blue Ridge area. And I visited the Smoky Mountains National Park and the uh, Conservation Corps was very active there. I was visiting museums and other you know, cultural heritage sites and grabbed some great literature uh, with some of the oral histories of the people that lived in that region before it was a national park. And one of the stories that caught my attention, it didn't necessarily have to do with the Conservation Corps, it had to do with some families that lived there and the timber and the lumber industry that was so active in the Smoky Mountains. And this one family, the Walkers, who owned one of the last, um, last tracks of virgin timberland. And this guy was hanging on to it, hanging on to it, wouldn't let the lumber companies log it until his, when he was on his deathbed, he signed away his land with the idea it would never be logged. The, the virgin forest wouldn't be logged anyways. And um, of course it was eventually, but that really like, just all these different ideas kind of came together for me. The Smoky Mountains was a great location for setting this book. To our ears today in 2022, we hear the Civilian Conservation Corps and it's not something familiar the way it would have been back then when I get yeah. this impression that people were really watching each and every one of these New Deal programs come out and waiting to see one that possibly they could get a precious job. You think about the unemployment rate at the time, you're talking in the mid 20s right. that people yeah. are really struggling. And if you have an opportunity, you're going to take it. You, you will do anything. We've all seen those signs will work for food that that wasn't hyperbole. It wasn't like today you hear people say, oh, I'm starving because I the Wendy's line is long at the drive through. They were literally starving. This was a really hard time. And the CCC gives them a chance. And you focus in on one of these people that was given a chance here in the truth of who you are. So tell us what this program was and what it would have offered somebody like Ben Taylor, your main character, who badly needs to work, badly needs a paycheck because he needs to feed his family. Right, yeah, and that was the case. I mean, I think Roosevelt, you know, he had a lot of New Deal programs and I, I think the Roosevelt family in general, a lot of people with wealth, as we all know, uh, tend to be ones that own land themselves and want to preserve land, right? And they, he, I think he, it was part of his um, philosophy to preserve lands and to um, enhance the park system. And so it kind of, it was a nice melding together of like, let's put some guys to work and we'll put them together on our public lands, put them to work on our public lands. And really what they were targeting mostly is, well, the rural areas where there was, um, you know, poverty, but also the cities where we had a lot of people coming in from, you know, immigrants coming in and they, you know, they're walking the streets without jobs. Uh, you know, it was a way to get people off the streets, basically, and into jobs. It paid $5, which is nothing, really. $4 of it went home to their family. So these guys only had a dollar to spend, but they were fed, and they had health care, they had shelter. They were also trained by military men from World War One. So they learned skills, they learned uh, discipline. You know, it was a program that was multifaceted. 
And, you know, it was a way to uh, keep people employed and so that, you know, there wasn't disgruntlement in the cities or rural areas. You know, there's a lot of nuances to that program. <laughs> I've read different yeah. various opinions. It was interesting because one of the things I read, one of the books I was reading um, set in Smoky Mountains and it was, you know, oral histories of people that grew up in that time period. And they said, if you were, um, you were more likely to get a job in the court if you were a Democrat. <laughs> so people in the, some of the towns would change their political affiliation. <laughs> and it wasn't just, you know, Makes getting sense. a job. Yeah, because some of the jobs weren't just the grunt work. Some of them were, so say you were a carpenter or you were um, a person with engineering skills. You could get a job at a higher pay rate, obviously, because you would lead the guys. So there was a lot of prestige to getting a job. Um, and it was helpful to the family, of course, too. Hopefully, in the most positive sense, you would hope that the government would say, well, these things do need to be done for the public good, not just things, right. as you were saying, the, the Roosevelt family with TR, loving the forest, loving forest management. But right. you would hope that they would say, just like we're going through now with the pandemic. Uh, I know in my right. house, I said, well, I'm going to be stuck at home. Hmm, I got to yeah. replace those basement windows. Let me do that. I'll do that right. now because I have the time, right? <laughs> Never mind. I'm, now I'm. it's been two years. I didn't expect two years. So and my only yeah. project left is maybe I'll move the house a little to the left. But right. it's, yeah. Yeah. Right. It's, it, this is what these guys were doing. They had the skills. Yeah. They had the yeah. time. Somebody was going to pay them. They would do it. And right. so, and, and then the forest, it's such a romantic setting, as you said, right? So that, right. that's what these guys were in for. They wanted to pay their bills. They had the skills. They would be hired by the government to do things that really would, in the idealist sense, and the New Deal was certainly very idealized at the time and since, is they would go down there and they would do that work. And that's what these guys right. are in for, right? In the CCC, they're part of a movement, really. Right. Army. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at Smoky Mountains in particular, Newfound Gap Road, if you ever get a chance to drive through the uh, park, that road was built by the Conservation Corps. So not only did they, you know, they planted over a billion trees and not just in Smoky Mountains, I'm talking about nationwide in the period between 1933 and 1939, a billion trees were planted by the Conservation Corps. So they were dubbed the tree army. Uh, but they also did a lot of hardscape. So a lot of the parks you go to where you see these stone bridges, roads, a lot of, you know, some of the shelters were built by these guys. Uh, so they learned some really valuable skills as well. Carpentry, masonry, things that they could take, um, you know, with them. Although a lot of these guys ended up in World War II, which, the you know, that's one reason why the trajectory of the story ends up in World War II. Uh, but, you know, they were they became a skilled workforce, basically. And that's the history part of it there. That's yeah. the hard, the nonfiction part, which is already fascinating in and of itself. It is. And then yeah. you take it here and you write a novel out of it, set the novel there. Perfect place to set it for me, which on, in the hands of a less skilled author, if you'll allow me to compliment you, wouldn't be maybe, but I did enjoy your book. <laughs> and so I said, oh, this is perfect, right? If, it, if you do it right, it seems, like, it seems like it was just meant to be. And you, you yeah. certainly did do it right here in the truth of who you are. And you oh, thank start you. the book. Well, you're welcome. It's it's just the truth. But speaking of truth, the truth of who you are, I want to yeah. get to that title. That's where you start this book with the title. And I really like that because you're speaking, writing in the second person there. And somebody sees the cover of the book as readers, 
we yeah. all internalize when we hear you, right? That's why you write yeah. in the second person, which is right. rare for a novel. There's a few out there, but it's not very popular at all these days because it, it's yes. very it's cognizant, it's, yeah. cognitive dissonance for even, us as mock. Yeah. <laughs> as yeah. far as I went is with the title. Yeah. Right. But it's good because it captures yeah. you and it reminds you. It does. Yeah, of, of all the yeah. secrets we all have. And I, I thought of right. Billy Joel and The Stranger. If you go listen to that that song and we all have a face we hide away forever. We take right. it out and show ourselves when no one is around. And that, yeah, that's, that's what great. this title is. So I wanted yeah. to ask you, how did you cobble that together? I've gushed enough about the title. How did you settle on that and cobble it together and decide this is my title that I'm going to go with? Okay, you know, I, it's a great question. And you always have these insights to my books that I don't even have because I didn't even realize what I did when I did. I made the title like second person. But uh, one of the yeah. things, and I'm not going to give away too much, but it's, you know, the truth of who you are, you're, it's going to grab you because you're like, oh, yeah, who am I? You know, everyone's always seeking that, like, who am I kind of thing. But also, in you know, when you get this towards the end of the book, you realize that you know, Ben has to, he's got a, he's grappling with the idea of telling some truths to his family and people that he cares about to let them know some things that, that have been hidden. So it's, it's also, you know, he's projecting a little bit. So that's, that's part of the reason I, I came up with that title. And I just stuck with it the whole time I wrote the book. I never changed the title. Anytime I pitched it to anybody, no one said anything to me about the title. Like, I don't like it. I just kept with it. So uh, I like the title. I think it's catchy. It is definitely. I heard yeah. you were writing it and I wanted to know more. And yeah. also yeah. credit to the cover art, because if you saw that yeah. title, you might mistake it for a self-help book, but the cover, yeah. you can tell it's a novel. <laughs> it's it's yeah, a something big. Contemplating. You, yeah. yeah. Don't, don't yeah. judge a book by its cover, they say, and yet we all yeah. do it. It's probably the biggest yeah. false thing that we ever say. It's a great metaphor, but it doesn't really work <laughs> for actual books. So yeah, that, that is really good. You, you yeah. get an idea. I'm going to hear a story. Yeah. Speaking of the story, I did want to ask you to read a passage. I like novelists to do that. Give us oh, yes. an idea what what okay. you find interesting, what you want to focus us on. Give us a flavor for your writing if people haven't had okay. the pleasure of reading a Sheila Myers novel before. So I vamped and you seem like you're ready. So go ahead and have at sure. it. Set it up for us and let us know what it is. Okay, so this is the prologue and this is basically the hook. So I'm just going to read the last paragraph of the prologue for you. So just to start also, Ben Taylor is an obituary writer. This is 1959. He's, the story looks back in time, but he's an obituary writer in a small newspaper in Hickory Run, Tennessee, which is just a made up town. And he's talking to himself. He said, my doctor told me yesterday to look for solace because I've been writing everyone else's stories after they die. And soon someone will be tasked with writing mine. I thought I'd give them material to work with. To do that, I have to reveal some uncomfortable truths I've tried to get. Everybody has regrets. Everybody wishes they could go back in time to change things. What if my brother hadn't gotten sick? What if I hadn't given my mother that satchel of herbs? And what if my father had saved his old forest? All what ifs. What if I'd stopped my cousin from using that defective jack lift? The trajectory of so many lives would have pivoted. And there's only one man who, besides me, knows the truth about what I did. And that man is dead. <laughs> so that's how I uh, I hook everybody at the beginning there. And um, it's your job. <laughs> I almost yeah I almost ditched the prologue actually, but because um, one editor suggested I you know some people just don't like prologues and I don't know why I personally like prologues, but I decided to keep it in because I thought it really needed a hook. You know, yeah, um, you so people hard keep on reading. 
Yeah. And yeah. I, I just felt, you know, if you're going to do a book where it's like a family saga, where you're moving along in time, people kind of need to know because it is character driven, a lot of the book, but they need to know, you know, what, is there something here that, you know, is there something here that's, that I should be worried about? Like, like, you know, <laughs> is there going to yeah. be some drama, you know, there's drama in spots, but um, yeah. So that's the thing about family sagas is that it's, you know, it, it, it moves along in time and it's not necessarily like, like a thriller where everything just, you know, is based on that thrill or, you know, you know, finding or looking for that one thing. So. It makes it clear also that it's not a mystery. Sometimes yes, you pick it yeah. up. Uh, uh, Linda Lloydman, she wrote her book that was about the World War II, also the period. And she said the way that they wrote the blurb in the, in the dust jacket made it sound like it was a mystery. And mm -hmm. she said, then, then I would get angry emails of people saying, I thought this was a mystery, but you tell me right in the beginning, it's so obvious. And she says, no, it oh, wasn't a mystery. Yeah. It was just the way that they, that they wrote the book, the, the two yeah. family house is the name of the book. And so it was obvious to people and uh, you could go either way. That that's inside baseball stuff. What you choose to do. I like it. I also like an epilogue because I want to find out what happened to people afterwards, <laughs> but this is the way that you put it together perfect to me for this story because you do know what you're going to get when you pick it up and right. obituaries are just fascinating we read those we always see ourselves in there speaking of the truth of who you are your title and you live on that hyphen i always say between when you're born and when you die that's something you're you're looking back he's clearly an older man by then and we're going to know anyway that he survives because it's written in the first person of the novel so in another right. novel, you might not want to lose the fact, keep that mystery a little alive, even if it's not a mystery, the tension. But we know the guy is looking back. We all have regrets. Yeah. Your readers are probably older in their life. They're not the age of Ben Taylor, who's in his 20s, right? So I, I right. thought that was a great choice and a great hook. His yeah. story is just so compelling. You see him sitting there at his desk. I, it was at a little shade of you. You spent a lot of time there sitting at your desk and writing. So <laughs> you, you really identified yeah. with Ben Taylor, I imagine. Yeah, I did. And, you know, uh, my father just passed away. That's one reason I haven't been writing lately. Uh, Sorry. And my, my, yeah, it was really sad. It was, I, I never, you know, that's my first, you know, my only parent that's died. I, it was sad. And my brother wrote the obituary and everybody commented how it was just, it was like a story. And I've always been kind of fascinated by obituaries for whatever reason. I know that sounds a little morbid, but I love cemeteries and I love obituaries and I, they're kind of, they're stories in themselves, you know? And I, I feel like people frame stories because that's what they want everyone to remember, you know? Um, so I've always been a little fascinated by that. And I thought it would be interesting to have a story written by somebody who writes other people's stories all the time. And if you read the book too, you kind of get the sense that, you know, uh, it's set in Appalachia. There's a, a very big oral tradition of storytelling. And so it just makes sense that, you know, somebody who is um, throughout his life raised around people that are always telling folk tales that might become, you know, go to work in a newspaper and, you know, and to some degree, what he's doing is writing folktales, right, about other people. Now he's trying to figure you, out, should I write a folktale about myself? <laughs> <laughs> you, you see know? an obit, you, yeah. you see an obit, you immediately wonder, is 
is how much of this is true, how much is false. Yeah. And sometimes you want to know more about that person, right? Yeah, so right. that's that's the thing here. I, I'll tweet them out sometimes just when I'm doing research on other things and yeah. you find it. And it's sometimes so frustrating because that's it. That's all people have. It's something that yeah. Theodore Roosevelt's yeah. wife said that the woman should only appear in the newspaper three times, birth, marriage, and death. And there's a <laughs> lot of people exactly like that. You say, well, I want to know more about this person. They'll tell you how yeah. they died, but no yeah. details was it could have been a murder it could have been natural causes yeah. you, why can't i find i out know more? <laughs> i know yeah <laughs> so that's the kind of story here and yeah that's the yeah. truth of who you are nobody nobody wants their obit written that tells all their secrets right so no, that's part right. of it right there this guy <laughs> yeah. is kind of in the business of putting this is something maybe that maybe that you didn't intend but writing obituaries by nature, you're not really telling the truth of who people are. You're not telling their right. whole life story. You're right. in the business of, you're not gonna say that somebody was a drunk or you're not gonna say that somebody, oh gosh, that guy, you know, he hit somebody for no reason in a bar fight. Right. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. That all gets left out. And this, is, yeah. and this is how Ben Taylor lives his life in the truth of who you are, isn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, he's grappling at the end of his life, but throughout the book, you kind of, you can see how, because of it, it, it's a coming of age story to some degree. So you see how he ages, how he sees other people hiding truths, right? right? You know, his mother, his father, everybody's hiding something. And so he's learned from an early age, you know, that that's kind of what you do. You know, you don't have, you don't want everyone to know everything that's going on in your family, especially. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So when he comes to that critical juncture in the book where he has to make a decision about, you know, keeping his job at the Civilian Conservation Corps or telling the truth. That's, I think, when all that comes into play. And the other part that I thought was important in the book, and, you know, it's about family, but it's also about friendship and, uh, and you know, the friendships he forges in the Civilian Conservation Corps really um, have a big impact on him. And especially his friend, Tony, uh, which I... I don't know if you've read this book, The City of Thieves. It's one of my favorite books of all time by David Benioff. I don't remember it being too graphic in any way, but uh, it's really good World War II book. And the characters in there, it's really about friendship to some degree. And I modeled um, Tony after the character Kyla. I think it's how you say Koyla. C-K-O-Y-L-A, Koyla. I don't know how you would say it. And it's, it's set in uh, Russia, so... And I, you know, wanted to incorporate that whole idea that, you know, you have family and then you forge friendships that are almost like family. And, um, you know, that's, that was a big part of uh, his life too, because he loses family members. And then when he goes the, into the conservation corps, they become his family to some degree. These guys live together in barracks. They lived, you know, for months on end, they didn't really go home um, except to visit once in a while. So they became like family just like it would happen in the military, I, I believe, you know. Makes sense that they would. I was yeah. thinking the same uh, thing as you were speaking there about the relationships that he develops. Plus when you're young, that's when you forge friendships. It's, mm -hmm. there was a New Yorker cartoon and it was, look, look, Bill made a new friend as an adult and everybody was so excited. And you see articles <laughs> every now and then about that. Why is it so hard when you're an adult? Ne never mind. now we're all locked in our houses. So it's yeah. a little bit harder yeah. to make friends. I know. But, this man, by the way, Ben Taylor, I wanted to tell everybody listening and watching that he's based on a true story or your story here in the truth of who you are is appropriately based on a true story. Now, mm -hmm. with the Durants and the Durant family saga, 
you had not only a lot of detail on them because they were a prominent family, but you wanted to stick close to the real story. You weren't going to suddenly have a thing that was completely out of character. If they suddenly went to Hawaii, it just wouldn't have made sense for them. And so for the Durants, I know you lived with them. You wanted to be faithful, but tell a good story in those three novels. How is this different here with Ben Taylor? Because I imagine he's not as prominent a figure at all. I imagine there's not tons of things. He didn't have those cotillions. He didn't have all those yeah. details in the paper. <laughs> he didn't have a railroad empire where people would be yeah. interviewing him and paying attention to him. So yeah. I wanted to know how close, how much of the real man that you base your character Ben Taylor on is the man we would have known if we were back holding a shovel, holding an ax next to him in the tree army back yeah. in those mountains. Yeah, so I really delved into, uh, there was two parts to this book. So the first part set in Appalachia before, you know, a little before the Great Depression hits and then then the Civilian Conservation Corps. And I read a lot of oral histories, diaries of people that um, lived during that era, both men that were in the Conservation Corps as well as people living in the Smoky Mountains during the Great Depression era. And so that's where I got a lot of inspiration. And like I said, I modeled Ben Taylor and his family after the Walkers and um, Bill Walker, who the guy that owned the timber, the virgin timber. And in his distant relatives, um, they were the Walker sisters. And so when the, um, you know, country decided we're going to turn this into a national park, you know, the Smoky Mountains, they basically were kicking people out. And, you know, either buying them out or eminent domain or whatever they did. And the Walker sisters ended up staying because they were too elderly to leave. And so that's in the book, too. Like he has ants and they become basically a tourist attraction. They let them stay. The Walker sisters were actually featured in the Saturday Evening Post in 1946. They were probably in their 60s then. And so I had a lot of material to work with about the people that lived in the region, you know, both. Um, before it was turned into a national park and then during the time period when they were building the national park and they had the conservation corps camps there they had they had over 25 camps in the smoky mountains national park so there was a lot of material to work with there's a really good website the civilian conservation corps has archives of the old newspapers that they used to put out and um, so i actually used some of the material from those newspapers in my book um, you know, the things that daily activities, the games, the guys played, things like that. Uh, it was a real, there was a lot of material to work with and, um, it was just fascinating, you know, and the fact that I think because of the time period, uh, there was enough people around in the sixties who interviewed the people from that time period. So they got their original stories, which is great when that happens, when you have that kind of material to work with. So, uh, yeah, I got really lucky that way. I love visiting. That's why I love when I travel. I like going to these small town museums and cultural museums because they tend to have those books that you wouldn't, you can find maybe some of them on Amazon, but, or, you know, other booksellers, Barnes and Noble, but you, you tend to see them in these um, stores because they're usually self-published or published by a local print press or something like that and they're about the region. Those are the best sources of material for writing historical fiction, I think. And um, yeah. So yeah, and I have to compliment you on your discipline because it would be easy. There's millions of people out there who say, I'm gonna write a novel someday and they just get last lost in the research. So I have to compliment yeah. you for not getting lost in the research. That is great. Yeah. 
I had and, to stop and, myself. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, they'll yeah. suck. They'll suck your whole life out of just enjoying yeah. those old newspaper articles and obituaries. I've lost <laughs> yeah. many a Sunday afternoon just reading obituaries. How much fun am I? I'm so exciting. I sit there reading yeah. obituaries and trying to find on Ancestry.com how this person. Died. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's kind of fun. It is. It's so. I know. It's creepy fun. I don't know what that is. I don't know what it is about us, but uh, we got to be worried about it. I don't know. Yeah. The other thing well, we people have, should yeah. know is. I did set this in, um, in an area, there's an area in the Smoky Mountains. So if people want to go, I'm really pitching going to the Smoky Mountains, but there's a, a, an area called Cadiz Cove. And it's so what the um, park, luckily people had the foresight to say, we're kicking all these people out, right? We want their lands, but we'll keep, they kept this whole little village intact. So all the cabins are still there. (laughs) All the outhouses and the chicken coops and the silos are there. And you can joke, my husband and I went there and you can drive around, you can bike around. It's like a, a 10 mile loop, get out and you can, you know, read all about the different families that live there. So there is a cultural heritage site. There's a couple of them in the park, actually. Um, you know, buildings were abandoned, hotels were abandoned. And in some cases they've been let to rot, but in other cases they've been preserved. Very similar to the Adirondacks, by the way, and uh, where my other Durant books are set. So it was, it was nice to see that. Definitely great to be able to walk the ground and be in the buildings. That's certainly something with those cabins up there and and the lakes and the forest. I could still vividly see it from your novel, even though I never saw it in the first person. Again, a credit to your writing. I I wanted to mention something else, and that is that your book is timed almost exactly for Arbor Day. And Arbor Day, it occurred to me, it sounds like it's a great time to go down there and visit the Smoky Mountains that you were just talking about, because it's kind of a forgotten holiday. It sounds very old, at least to my ears, and something we used to hear about when we were kids. And then that guy yeah. who decided he was going to kill and compost his girlfriend created Earth Day, which is kind of a weird <laughs> way to remember Earth Day. But to me, I'd much rather have Arbor Day because, for one thing, nobody gets killed and composted, which is great. And also yeah. the fact that Al Arbor was the coach of four Stanley Cups for the New York Islanders in the 80s, and those were my Ooh. team back then. So okay. <laughs> my spelled different as a um, you. Flyers, though, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I had to actually look up Arbor Day yesterday because I've been, so throughout my career working in ecology and teaching ecology, I have planted so many trees with students and um, community people at parks and uh you know, so I've always planted trees and thought it was just like a, a wonderful thing to do because it, I like planting trees in my yard, you know, because I, I always like watching the whole progression of their growth. And so w- that was a, the thing that kind of attracted me to the story in general was I want to write about these guys. They planted a billion trees in the United States over a period of six years. They, you know, protected our forests. They did a lot of forestry management, uh, fire suppression, that kind of thing. It's just by chance, because I don't think my publisher knew this, and I don't know, I got to ask them, but it's coming out April 28th, and Arbor Day this year is the 29th, so I'm really excited about that, and uh, and I'm going to be pitching all over the place, like, here's a book about trees and, and the, the, <laughs> our, our history of trees in this country, but Arbor Day, I guess, was started in Nebraska by some farmer, actually, in the 18, like, 70s, and it's yeah. a, I guess it's a holiday in Nebraska. So Arbor Day is always a holiday. Yeah, it's a big yeah. deal in Nebraska. They wanted to plant trees in Nebraska. I guess it was just a little, <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of forest in Nebraska, I guess. <laughs> Which kind of makes sense because of the climate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And by the so, way, if anybody yeah. doubts your love of trees, I just want to point out behind you, there is yeah. a leaf. Yeah. My, my daughter took that picture. It's a maple leaf. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. 
I know it is kind of weird and serendipity here, but the last book I wrote was set in the Adirondacks, which is all mountainous. And then this book is set in the Smokies, which is mountainous. So just the, the next book I have that might be coming out isn't set in the mountains, but yeah, <laughs> I tend to like those kind of, you know, um, settings because I like writing about the land and that tension between, um, you know, private land ownership and the public right to access, you know, beautiful lands. And I think you find that in both, you know, the Trillant Durant trilogy and in this book. Not the only truth that, where you are, yeah. You take Ben Taylor over to Europe, World War II, and where do you take him? But the Ardennes yeah. Forest and the Battle of the Bulge, you have a thing for forests. He he can't yes. get away from the forest. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know. I know. I said this is the best setting for the next, where he's got to end up. And uh, because so many men from the Conservation Corps were trained by World War I vets, they had a lot of military discipline. And so it was just a natural that the government recruited them into World War II. So that was something I had also learned about while I was reading about the Corps is that a lot of them ended up in World War II. These guys really were the, what is that called? The What did uh, Brokaw call them? The greatest generation? Greatest generation, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, what they did for our country and both the, you know, our in our country and outside of our country is amazing. So, and I picked our dens, yeah, like you said, because the setting there for the Battle of the Bulge, which I really didn't know a lot about, it was just very harsh. It was winter. It was December. It was cold. It was forested. It was creepy, dark. Um, so, you know, these guys, and it, it, from what I read, they were ill-prepared for the actual battle. Uh, did not expect the affront they, you know, what happened to them. Yeah. And so it was a, it was, a, I actually expanded a lot on that chapter. An editor gave me some comments back saying, you know, you kind of let it all go. You did all this detail about the core and then you get to, World War Two, and so I had to get a lot more more material on it because I, um, I've you know avoided writing about World War Two. I ha it's just never been an interest for me. So that was definitely a new. So there's like a whole part set there, yeah, in our dens. I had to found a hook. how to pronounce it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you found a hook by finding a forest. Good job. Keep yeah, yourself entertained. <laughs> You're yeah. enjoying my conversation with Sheila Myers. She is the author of. The Truth of Who You Are. You can visit her at SheilaMyers.com or find her on Twitter and Facebook. Rob Hilliard, who I interviewed about his book, A Season in the Allegheny, another book that takes us to the forests, in his case, Pennsylvania. He writes of The Truth of Who You Are. Sheila Myers crafts a coming-of-age saga of both a young man fighting to keep his family intact and of the entire Great Smoky Mountains region. She also captures the spirit of the Civilian Conservation Corps, its rejuvenating impact on the landscape, and its transformative influence on the young men who served. Sheila, we have a video question from Rob Hilliard about the truth of who you are. Let's listen to it now, and you can take a whack at answering it. Hello, Dean, and hello, Sheila. I did have a question for the interview. As an author who's written about the impact the Civilian Conservation Corps had on forest recovery, and as the grandson of a real-life CCC boy, I was excited to see you highlight the CCC's positive effect on the Taylor family in the town of Hickory Run. My two-part question is this. How do you think Ben Taylor's life story might have changed if he hadn't joined the CCC or if he'd been assigned to a camp in another part of the U.S.? Thanks, Rob. That, 
there's a, a couple of things that could have happened to Ben if, you know, he didn't end up in the core. I mean, one is he probably would have had to move out of the area because people were being forced to leave. I mean, the, they were trying to turn the place into a, a national park. There were a lot of reluctant um, people were reluctant to leave, but some were just like, where am I going to go? I can't do anything here anyways. The government was telling them if you stay, you have to either be elderly, but you know, we won't let you hunt. We won't let you cut timber. We won't let you grow anything. So there was really no purpose in staying anymore. So he might've moved off into maybe Knoxville or another city to find work. Um, the other option he might, you know, you brought up, you know, some of these guys were sent in different, you know, he ended up in the Smoky Mountains, but others were sent to different locations. There were camps all over the United States. And what's interesting is that a lot of these, the guys that were in the Corps came from the Northeastern cities, which is where, the, you know, the most dense population was at the time. And I was reading an interesting story about some guys that were sent to the Orcas Islands, which is off the coast of Washington state. And they were sent to a port in Seattle and they were told to get on a ship and the ship was taking them out to these islands, which they couldn't see. And they freaked out. They thought they were being kidnapped by the government. They thought the whole thing was a conspiracy that they were conscripted <laughs> to something. <laughs> I mean, you got to think, these guys had never been anywhere, you know? Yeah, um, not on a plane, Taylor probably. had never left the Smokies. Right, right, yeah. yeah. So, so that probably would have been his other option is being recruited to somewhere else. You know, there was camps all up and down the East Coast, though, too. You know, you got the Allegheny. Um, you've got the, the Adirondacks, um, you know, the there's you know anywhere you look go look around your town now and everyone take notice that there's some some uh, sign that there was the civilian conservation corps i mean i'm in the finger lakes region and a lot of the state parks around here the buildings and the steps like at watkins glen state park was all built by the conservation corps you know so he would have had other options i think but i had to set it there yeah it's not easy just to put all those in. Sometimes you look around here in New Jersey, even, and you go to a park and you see there's so many different kinds of trees. I never see them. And then you realize, or somebody tells you, you see a plaque, or if you're crazy like yeah. me and you, we look it up in the old yeah. newspaper archives and get lost in obituaries. And they'll tell you, yeah. this is one of the <laughs> local guys. And they did this project, the Rutgers University, the stadium there, the football stadium, the original one was one of these New Deal projects. So oh, this legacy, yeah. this legacy is all around us, right? That we have. It really is. Yeah, it's fascinating. I kind of wonder with this new infrastructure bill that's coming and how it's going to play out you know i mean it is almost like another new deal really you know it's it's investing in our public infrastructure and uh you know I, i'm glad we're doing it i i mean i'm glad the conservation corps did what they did uh, because i go to a lot of parks and natural areas and appreciate them so you know on the other side i and i'm glad i hope i did a good job of explaining you know the people that live there and how they felt about it <laughs> Yeah, because somebody you know. has to be displaced and there's going to be right. waste and graft and there will be in this one, I'm sure, as well. But you, you try to put on your good citizen hat and say, gosh, I hope it goes to great things like forests and planting trees. And yeah. there we, yeah. we need trees. I'm I really kind of broke my heart that I had to cut down the trees in my yard, but they were just way too big and way too close to the house. And uh and I woke up one morning, had yeah. my coffee, and there's a squirrel sitting on the fence. I just also fenced in the yard. And 
he's sitting up there looking at the snow and where the giant oak tree used to be. And I could hear Madonna's, this used to be my playground playing in my head because I felt bad. <laughs> he, you took away my food. You took away my house. You, you leveled everything you, you know, leaves they use for their bedding. And this is what people um, were like at the time. Hey, this is yeah. where I grew up and where I lived and you took it away from me. And you're a human being, not a squirrel that I'm crazily making into a cartoon character in my head. But these guys yeah. were doing real work and, it's much better than just doing something that is just digging holes for a living. It's nice right. that they felt that sense of accomplishment. And then, of course, Ben Taylor has this horrible feeling where he's carrying this horrible secret. It changes him and he's not allowed to just live his life and have the same nostalgia as that squirrel or as anybody else because of this right. horrible accident that happens that it changes his right. life. He's a burden. Yeah. And he. Uh, you know, basically he's in a position where he's in love with somebody he just asked to marry and he had been, you know, he's promoted and he's, you know, looking ahead and then this happens and he has to kind of make this decision. What do I do? You know, who am I protecting here? Which I think we've all been in those dilemmas, you know, at some time or another, it might be life and death, but it's definitely, you know, you wonder if the decision made was the most ethical. Yeah. It's always easy to talk ourselves out of doing the right thing. Unfortunately, right. yeah, but you pay yeah. the price. It's uh, yeah. I tell another yeah. brief story. My one of my brothers, when we were kids back in the seventies, and he was a teenager, and he tried to take the car, take dad's car, and he hit the garage door, and knocked it down, and collapsed. And he covered it up. Nobody knew what happened. It looked like a bomb was thrown in there. So. And nowadays, when he looks back, and we joke with my father, it's long since my parents know what happened. He said, I would have been better off coming clean because for the next two yeah. months, I lived in terror. Every time the, he closed the door and came home, oh, he knows, he knows, he knows. And so he said, if I, I just gotten the, gotten the spanking in the, at the time, yeah. it would have been so much better than carrying that. Yeah, just, just yeah. come clean. Yeah. So I, you know, that was the, kind of the last part of the book is him constantly, you know, searching for his friend to tell him like, you know, this is what happened. And, and yeah, I won't give it too much away, but I had to really get into that. Like, you know, that whole feeling of guilt just that just lives with you and you're just wanting so bad to make amends and what do you do and how do you do it? And uh, I felt like the battle of the bulge was a good place to have that climax happen. So, so that's what I did. And yeah, I think, I think people enjoy the story, especially if you like family sagas and you like stories that have a trajectory of somebody, you know, aging and going through their life. And, and I tried to um, have this, uh, I think one of your questions was about, you know, how did I get the voice? You know, so, cause I, I really purposely have him start when he's 15, 12 or 15, I can't remember now, but you know, all the way till he's in his sixties, right? So how do you do that voice? And I, I, I thought a lot about my son who's young and how he used to talk when he was younger and then, you know, how he talks now. So it was, it was trying to get into the male voice. And I hope I did a good job of that because that's not easy to do if you're female. And, uh, you know, so I hope people enjoy it. Well, I did. And I, and I like looking for the strings, right? The, yeah. I always say it's like a pencil drawing. When you, when you paint a painting, first you sketch it out and then you paint those over or erase them once you go through the real work of painting the painting and i always look for those strings i could see the author's hand there oh she has a light touch with the brush or what have you so i enjoyed yeah. that in the truth of who you are you yeah. talked a lot there about the smoky mountains obviously the book is set there and 
the still and during prohibition the moonshine still the rum runners the guys who are making that that bathtub hooch that's a big part of the culture and it's not just like the dukes of hazard where they're they're trying to obey the law and this is just kind of a thing they do because they're the duke boys and they can't go on a nice straight path they've got to be cheating something it's really a part of their livelihood and the idea of having a still my grandmother had a still by the way in her basement yeah. we're not talking that long ago that was part of the part of the culture and she was greek yeah. so she's she, she wasn't down there but yeah. it was it was part of the livelihood right to make your own yeah. hooch back then and then also it was yeah. a way to to make some money so tell us yeah. how that played into the book how did you research this and have you ever tried any moonshine are you now a moonshine drinker did you get that in, yeah. into the book I have a friend that has a still <laughs> and my nephew actually is a distiller. He's um, works for a, um, you know, distillery in Rochester. Uh, yeah. I don't really like the harshness of it, so I don't tend to drink it, but yeah, when I was doing my research, what I found out was in Appalachia, the, a lot of people grew corn. It was their sustenance. I mean, it was basically, that's what they, you know, the basis, basis of all their meals, just like rice would be for other people. So it was very natural for them then to use it to still into some kind of a alcohol, which was used for a variety of purposes, right? It wasn't just to get drunk. It was medicinal. It was in an antiseptic, you know, so it was really part of the culture. And then when prohibition came, of course, it just increased the value, right? Of this product that was always used for bartering. So I definitely wanted to incorporate that part of the culture into the story because it, it really was a big part of what happened during the Great Depression. And when people were looking for ways of making money, it just became a natural um, you know, way to make money because they were already producing this stuff anyways. So it wasn't new. you know. Um, it just lent itself, like everyone knows about prohibition and becoming more of a violent, more dark, uh, you know, way to to function and make money and you know again now you're hiding from the law so yeah hiding yeah. another thing hiding, hiding something one else more thing. yet again right. he's yeah. had another secret oh great right <laughs> but you know you know ben's you know family gets there's also some medical issues you know with his brother and so his father has to he has to make money he has to buy medicine for his child he has to you know it was just it was a way to to keep the family going and this also yeah. is something that keeps him in the crucible as they call it when you're writing a novel right one more thing he he can't lose that job it's not just that he's afraid to tell his father in my brother's case that i smashed the garage door off and smashed the car it's yeah. he needs that money there's not it's not as if he can go get another job it's not as if he can yeah. afford to go to prison so this right. is a fascinating way to keep him in that crucible and and we don't get unsympathetic for him because it would be easy in the hands of a less skilled author if we met somebody like that to say, oh, gosh, that guy did a horrible thing. He's only doing it for himself. Well, no, right. not in the case of Ben Taylor, your character. We can relate yeah. to why he makes the decisions he does. And we root yes. for him. We want him to we want him to find some peace with that so that by the time his obituary does come, he, he can be at peace and know that he lived a good life and that this one mistake that he makes does not define him for his whole life. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, I think the, the idea is, uh, you know, just do no harm, right? You know, and yeah. if it means not telling everybody exactly what happens, if it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, not going to harm them, you know, the idea is, you know, do no harm. 
Yeah, there's a, I forgot who it is. It's not Emily Post or maybe it is someone like that. But my wife said that her rule, she told me once is, if you're out at a party, right, and somebody has spinach in their teeth, you tell them because they can go to, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll get rid of right. it. But yeah. if it's something like, oh, hey, you're, you're, you have a tear, it's just going to make them self-conscious and they can't do anything about it in the moment. It'll just ruin the moment for the time because you don't see it. It's <laughs> under their, their blouse or yeah. whatever. And you just notice, like, for instance, there was a woman once on the subway platform and she's wearing her dress inside out, I noticed. And I said, oh. well, I can't say anything. I'm not going to say anything because she can't really you take can't it do off anything and fix about it, it right now. And it'll just make her self-conscious <laughs> for the rest of her ride. So I just yeah, said, yeah, oh, yeah. okay. So that yeah. that's kind of the thing, I think. And hey, we did get a little self-help help lesson here from the truth yeah. of who you are after I said it's, how, how dare you teach me things in my fiction? That's not what I came here for. I came here for a great story and I learned something, which actually yeah. is, in fact, the truth of a good novel. I enjoy that yeah. very much. Right, yeah. yeah. I want to tell you one little anecdote before we get off because Rob was so gracious to ask the questions. So he was gracious enough to read and, and offer a blurb for my book. And he's, he, he emails back and he's like, sure, you know, that because he's a, I guess he was a sports writer. And he's like, that scene, talk about a woman writing, you know, male things. He's like, that sports scene, you got to rewrite that. It was um, the baseball <laughs> scene. And he didn't like the way I wrote it. And I had things wrong. So I actually sat down with my husband, who's more into baseball, and we rewrote it together. And I said it's rough. But my husband, after I rewriting it, he's like, my husband's like, well, wait a minute, you don't tell anybody who wins the game. I'm like, that's not <laughs> the point of that whole. <laughs> but it was really funny. Rob was very helpful. So it's great to connect with other authors. And I think one thing I like about your show is I've been listening, I listen, and then I meet other authors just by listening to them and connect with them on We've been able to connect on social media, especially. So that's how I met Rob, actually, from listening to him sp speak on your show. Great. I was wondering yeah. how that connection yeah, came. Yeah, that's I, how we connected. Yeah. And yeah. so, I'm, um, you know, you know, and he's working I, on a novel. So hopefully. Yes, he is. I keep pushing yeah. him to do it. I've met Rob in person, actually, a couple of times. Oh, good. So, good, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I encouraged him, too. I said I was going to go to him right away because I knew of the CCC connection for a question. Yeah. And then I saw your author page. I said, oh, wait, he wrote a blurb for this book. I'd look like a dope if I asked him. He'd say, oh, yeah, I already wrote a blurb for that book. Hello. Yeah. I'm sure he wouldn't because yeah. Rob's a very nice guy, but I would have felt like yeah. that. But yeah, that was so great. And uh, yeah. I, I do want to close by asking you to make a brief pitch. I think we've done a good job here giving people a little flavor of the truth of who you are. But if you had to name some other books and tell people who haven't had the pleasure of reading a Sheila Myers book, if they don't know, as I do, that seeing your name in the cover of a novel alone means I should pick it up and it's going to be a good book. What would you compare it to? What would you tell people if you liked that book, you will really love the truth of who you are and you should pick it up and enjoy it. It's a good question. One book is called This Tender Land by William Kent Kruger. And it's a coming of age story about a young boy during the Great Depression. I think people will really enjoy it. He's actually travels around on the trains like a hobo would. Uh, the other one is uh, The Book Woman of Troublesome Creek, which is set in Appalachia during Great Depression. And it's about the women who carried books to people into the mountains as part of the New Deal program and, uh, you know, on horseback. And that one's written by Kim Michelle Richardson. And then I already mentioned The City of Thieves, which is really a World War II book, but I just love the friendship that's forged in that book. And there's a lot of and, friendships uh, in this book. Yeah. And this book is actually uh, on Kindle on sale for $2.99 on all um, venues, you know, all the different um, ebook venues. So uh, through March 
or May 3rd. You can pre-order it now, but it launches, like I said, right around uh, Arbor Day. Okay, so however you get it, I would encourage you to get it. Buy two copies. Go and we're always looking for gifts, right? It's not never too early to start thinking about somebody it's hard to buy for. Buy that hard copy. Put it in their hands. You will not be sorry. And not only will that, will Sheila Myers be able to make a reader for life? I am sure once they read one book, they'll want to read them all. But it'll be very enjoyable for all of you out there. I love sharing great novelists. I love sharing great stories and great books with people. This one has so much in it does the truth of who you are. I encourage you to pick it up. Sheila, I wish you the best of luck with this novel. So glad you stuck with this, wrote this book, finished it during the pandemic, and now we can enjoy it. (laughs) However we enjoy it here, please do go get it. Even if you watch this episode after it's not on sale anymore, you're getting your money's worth, whatever they charge you for it. Find it in a dusty (laughs) bookstore, wherever it is. Sheila Myers, thank you so much for sharing the truth of who you are today with all of us. Thank you. Thanks, Dean. Again, the novel is The Truth of Who You Are. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode, because every time you buy a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. I have huge affection for Sheila Myers, as you could tell from our conversation, and that I really admire her work, and I love getting into the nitty gritty of how she writes things. So thanks to her, please do visit her at SheilaMyers.com for more on her historical fiction, or you can find her on Twitter and Facebook. As you heard her say, she likes to communicate with fellow writers, but also with her readers. And by the way, while we were talking, I realized I have a bottle of moonshine upstairs in my bar. This is Tim Smith's moonshine out of Culpeper, Virginia. So we're not too far afield there from the place that we're talking about in The Truth of Who You Are. That's his dog Camo, which is pretty cool, right? Dalmatian, which by the way, they have great spots. And I know from my veterinary days, people think they're real cute, but they are—they were originally designed to protect people. So they do make a good dog if you wanna keep your still completely safe from people who might try to come and steal your stuff. Please do also check out our conversations about Sheila Myers and her Durant family saga. Those cover book one, Imaginary Brightness, book two, Castles in the Air, and the conclusion, The Night is Done. If you enjoyed this video conversation, however, and all the little elements of history that I put in there, please do subscribe to us on YouTube and Rumble for future journeys in the Wayback Machine. You can find over 225 interviews in our archives at historyauthor.com one way or the other. I think you'll enjoy meeting all of these authors and having some fun with me, having fun with them, plus you'll learn something along the way. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into the forests of yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, On behalf of Sheila Myers, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York.